In this episode of Taxpayer Talk, the shoe's on the other foot and I'm being interviewed by the Executive Director of the New Zealand Initiative think tank, Oliver Hartwich. You can also listen and download to the New Zealand Initiative's podcasts if you search New Zealand Initiative wherever good podcasts are sold. Oliver, the Executive Director of the Taxpayers Union, Jordan Williams. Hi, Jordan. Great to have you on the podcast, and especially great to have you on an issue on which we disagree. Um, and most of the time, <laughs> I think the New Zealand Initiative and the Taxpayers Union are roughly arguing similar things. On this topic we want to discuss today, I think we are not directly seeing eye to eye. Is that fair to say? I think in relation to the housing, I think it's more the local, uh, the role of local government uh, and the powers that should be given to a local government. I think the, it's fair to say the focuses of our organisations differ, but that's okay. Okay. And um, as you know, I haven't even introduced the topic properly because the topic is actually something that we have dis- been discussing for many, many years, the two of us, never on in public and never on a podcast before. It is uh, a topic that's uh, very close to my heart, and it is localism, decentralization, giving power and incentives to local government. And this discussion today was triggered by the National Party's policy announcement last week. So National announced that they want to give councils building above a historical average an incentive of $50,000 per house. We thought it was a great idea. Of course, we would say that because we've been pushing for that for many years. But the initial response from the taxpayers union was a little bit more muted. I mean, some of the aspects of the national party's package you seem to like, like um, making it easier for council to solve for development, and we wouldn't disagree. Some other aspects, in particular, the incentivization of local government you were a little bit more critical of. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. I mean, the Nets are basically doing, um, it, it's it's three things. The first is, well, they want to change the RMA around planning. They want to require councils to effectively make 30 years of new land for new housing available. Uh, and they want to introduce a bonus scheme, effectively, where councils are provided 50K for every new dwelling, not new house, new dwelling, uh, that is that is made available to the market. So I guess on the first issue, um, we would be in broad agreement. That's a good thing, right? Totally. I mean, as as you know, the the political focus has been far too much on the demand side, um, I- ignoring the um, vast majority or every credible economist is pointing out this is a supply side issue. You can't tax your way to cheaper housing, as this government uh, appears to want to do. We in New Zealand is a huge outlier, whereas despite not having a high population density, we build on only about 1% of our land. We have incredibly expensive land for housing, and that flows through to, frankly, my generation, um, that have been largely priced out of the housing market um, because of um, particular figures or the, the the class that that take a NIMBY approach and um, hate the idea of God forbid new suburbs or um, new new nappy burbs what they used to be called um, developing in areas that they quite like as farmland. Okay, so on that one, I think we are in complete agreement. Now, where we differ is on the $50,000 bonus. So uh, maybe just to explain again, what National proposes here is they want to take the completion figures, the building figures over the last five years, take the average and say to councils, if you are building more next year, 
than this historical average, we'll pay you $50,000 towards the financing of the infrastructure for these extra houses. I think that's a good idea because I think, frankly, that's what's holding councils back at the moment. They have all these tools, of course, under the RMA that allows them to slow down development, but the only reason why they are using the tools is, of course, because it doesn't pay for local government to engage in house building because often you have to pay a lot more for the infrastructure than even the 50,000 national proposals. I just talked last week to the CFO of a large New Zealand council, and I was told that for some of his colleagues, um, it can cost up to $120,000 in infrastructure costs them to make a new development possible per dwelling. So $50,000 is a nice first step, he said, but actually it might not even cover the full cost. And therefore, I always thought we have to give councils a proper compensation for the infrastructure costs they incur, because otherwise they will use every tool in the box to slow down development. And I think, as we just said, we agree, we need to see a lot more development. So what's your problem then with the incentive payments? I think that, I mean, being an, an economist, Oliver, you've rightly looked for incentives and you've nailed it on its head. Clearly, making a payment provides an additional incentive. I think our issue, though, is um, is twofold. Number one, councils already get money when there's new um, when there's new developments. That's the idea of development contributions, which, which is a tax. Um, so obviously provides a disincentive on the developers on the other side. The other thing, though, is, of course, every time there is a new dwelling, what the council is getting is effectively an annuity in perpetuity. They're getting a new rates bill going forward. And this is the idea of council debt funding. The problem, you know, that you've the cost on this infrastructure is up front, it'll last 50, 100 years in some instances. It's fair enough that you would borrow and spread that cost over time. The difficulty we've got is that councils across the country, and unfortunately, it's the worst in our. Um, in our growing or larger cities, um, the money has largely been squandered. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that why I make that point. But our concern is that simply piling more and more money onto councils um, plays into a narrative that councils up and down the country continue to run, which frankly, we don't think the evidence suggests, it supports rather. And that is that councils are not cash poor or councils are not poor. You know, there was a the last um, central government report that we're aware of this that was done back um, in the key years was basically between uh, 1990 and about 2005, you know, even on a real on a real basis, rates doubled. Um, you know, councils are simply so much bigger than they have been historically. And when you dig down into the where the money's going, because naturally, you know, that we, we do these local government league tables, we look over the um, long-term plans and the annual plans of all the councils, we hear the political rhetoric over and over again. Our council needs more money for good infrastructure. But you look at where the money's actually going and more and more of the proportion of the budget is actually going to operating costs not capital costs not the infrastructure that we all agree is um, is desperately needed in fact it's going mostly on opex which is actually staff it's payroll and i mean intuitively our people get that but the the the, the evidence bears that out so our concern is simply this that we've got councils up and down the country that are showing that they're very poor stewards of our money and simply throwing more money at the fire, we're not so sure as the, uh, we're pretty uncomfortable with. 
the other side of that, of course, is that it prov- at least it provides the right incentive, which we accept. Yeah. Hmm. We've got a few areas covered here. Um, some I agree with. I think that some council spending has been less than optimal, let's put it that way. Um, we wouldn't argue with you on that one. Where I probably um, take issue with you is where you say, well, okay, councils um, engage in development policies and effectively they gain an annuity. Well, that may be so because the council, of course, can charge rates in perpetuity now from the new development. The problem that I see is just that often these extra rate revenue wouldn't be enough to cover the cost of the extra infrastructure. So if you're taking the example I gave you earlier of councils now spending $120,000, if you then have rates revenue of maybe two or $3,000 um, from that property, that wouldn't be enough to really cover that, especially not if you also have, of course, operating costs year on year. So I think the rates um, probably aren't sufficient in some cases to deal with that. What happens typically, as you know, is councils going for development then spread the cost of the development, the infrastructure costs on existing mm. rate base. And so I think that's fundamentally unfair mm. because what we are asking local populations is to put up with a lot more pressure on public services, on infrastructure. And then as a thank you note from council, we're also increasing the taxes. Whereas I think in my ideal world, it would be the new residents effectively paying um, their own bill and their own way out of that. The other issue I see is actually where you say councils have been growing too much recently. Well, actually, that's not um, our experience. Uh, Bryce Wilkinson at the initiative looked at that um, a couple of years ago, and we found that actually over a long period of time, really going back to the 1890s, local government in New Zealand accounted for between 2 and 3% of GDP. The real growth of government, of course, as we know, has been in central government. So central government has grown considerably over these past 130-odd years, um, really uh, multiplied in size, and local government has been relatively steady over this time. So I don't think it is fair to say that um, the big growth of the government has been the local Does that cover the last 10 years? I'm quite quite surprised by that. that um, Actually, we didn't see much of a change. And in fact, I looked it up just um, a couple of weeks ago from the OECD. The OECD does some really interesting Mm. comparisons of um, industrialized countries and the size of local government and the distribution of government spending. New Zealand is the outlier in the OECD. In the developed world, there's no country as fiscally centralized as New Zealand. So in New Zealand, central government receives about 94-95% of all tax revenue, the rest is local. The average for the OECD is about two-thirds for central and the rest sub-central. So um, for some OECD countries, of of course, that means states or cantons or regions or provinces. Um, But for most of them, it also means a much stronger local government sector in New Zealand is among the most centralized countries you can find on the planet. And I think it doesn't work because we need local government, of course, to be proactive <laughs> in favor of development, not just for housing, for for business development, for new factories. And yet, basically, all the taxes generated after development go to Wellington. Put, put, I want to push back on that because I think that time and time again, we councils have got into trouble by pushing for new industries or new development. I mean, you're... I'm in Auckland today, but you're sitting in Wellington and your regional council down there, you know, used to own the local freezing works and all sorts of ports. Uh, Sorry, uh, historically, of course, the regional councils um, ran ports at at a loss of an economic development mechanism. But now they're getting into things like property development, which is frankly... That's not what I have in mind. What what I have in mind is, for example, the sleepyhead um, decision that the council in New Zealand took um, just a few months ago. You know, Sleepyhead, the bed factory, they wanted to build a new factory. They also wanted to build mm. several hundred new homes for the factory workers. 
they approached the council and the council said, actually, not, not here. Can you please have your factory and yeah, they would, somewhere else? They wouldn't get out of the way. They wouldn't shift regulatory burdens in order to get out of the way for... Well, they simply, they simply didn't want to have the factory development and housing development in their council area because it was a loss-making business yeah. for the council. Because basically, once you have the factory there, once you have the new housing development, yeah, you get some extra rate revenue, but the extra GSD, the extra corporate taxes, the extra income taxes generated, they flow to Wellington. So why would a council in its right mind say yes to that? I think it's a chicken and egg though i mean this is something that i mean obviously over the years we've 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 sparred on this issue multiple times and i think that our our uncomfortableness with providing more uh power or responsibility for local government is the short the short order is is that local government does not perform as well as not govern particularly well in new zealand vis-a-vis um even australia and one of the reasons for that uh is simply the institutional setup of it is constitutionally barbaric and this is terribly wonky and terribly boring but if anyone that that will listen i tell them if you wanted to make some very simple improvements to Auckland council you could do a couple of things number one apply the duties of political neutrality that apply on bureaucrats in wellington to people that work for Auckland council number two create we've cr- the super city legislation created a strong mayoral office, an executive type office where he proposed he um the mayor of Auckland, he or she has their own budget, propose the overall budget, effectively runs like an executive with council acting as a parliament. What they haven't done is provide the other side of that for which our hundreds of years of Westminster institutions um resulted from, which are things like being able to access information, having an equivalent of a um, when the Mayor of London has a question time or the question time we have at Parliament. There's no equivalent for written questions. And I, I was staggered when I set up the Taxpayers' Union um, eight years ago that uh, pretty much from the beginning we had elected officials around the country, including Auckland, approach us asking us to get information because they couldn't get it out of their own council. Well, how the heck do you govern an organisation when you don't have the equivalent of an MP to be able to call up officials and ask them questions and they have to answer in a politically neutral way? Or the rights of, say, a company director where actually you can look at your staff and say, no, I, I want this information. And so we've set up, I mean, we've basically set up councils to fail. Because one of the other things is, of course, you get into the arguments about quality of councillors and again, but again, it's chicken and egg. When yep. you when when you've when it's a crap job, you that you, the types of people and there's of course exceptions. There's some marvellous councillors around the country, but unfortunately they're dwindling um, because yep. it, because of these institutional um, uh, problems or the the poor design of the governance frameworks. It doesn't matter how you arrange your committees. If you can't have sort of an opposition or a, a an error check, which is what democracies rely on to, or democratic institutions rely on to function well, you're pretty stuffed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's why we often not go the um, the initiative. Of course, we're not that. We're, the Taxpayers Union would never do that, but we oh, we certainly do um, take a um, take a different approach <laughs> sometimes. Well, <laughs> look, I would I would go along a long way with you. Um, where I see things slightly differently is just that I think it's not enough to just change the formalistic uh, way a council is run. I think we actually need to change the culture. 
And to change the culture of councils, I think you need to incentivize them. And I just want to give you an example um, from our trip uh, we organized a few years ago to Switzerland. We took our members, of course, business uh, leaders to Switzerland for a week just to explore how that actually works in this different setting, where councils have the kinds of incentives that we would like to see here. And one of the examples was really striking. And I remember it. We were on Lake Lucerne um, with the head of Swiss tourism. And uh, we um, talked to him about how Switzerland promotes its tourism, uh, promotes itself as a destination. And he pointed out a new hotel development on top of a mountain in a beautiful alpine panorama, Mount Birkenstock. Um, three new hotels being developed, two five-star hotels, one four-star hotel, 400 beds, I think, um, creating, I don't know what it was, 700 jobs in a project volume of about $800 million. And then he also told us uh, it was actually done by foreign capital. It was the Qatari Investment Fund, the Sovereign Wealth Fund. And the whole thing actually happened within two years. And all, and all members, of course, wanted to know how did that work. And a simple story behind that was that the Qataris approached this little canton and said, we would like to invest. Um, what do we have to do? And what kind of conditions do you have for us? Well, the council or the canton actually at the time they tasked an economic consultancy and just said, can you please calculate how much it's worth it to us? And they basically said, well, if you say yes to this kind of development, you will have an extra tax revenue of about $1,000 per man, woman, and child in this canton forever. And that made the decision relatively straightforward. Of course, the canton said, yeah, okay, fine. And they cleared all the regulatory hurdles. They made this happen. And within a few years, you had this new hotel development. And then the Swiss guy turned around and said, by the way, how would that happen in New Zealand? And our members said, oh, God, first of all, you have to take it through the overseas, overseas investment office. Hmm. Then you have to take it through IMA processes. Then you have to deal with the local population. They would realize that none of the tax revenue would end up with them. It would all go to Wellington. And so long story short, this project would never happen in New Zealand. And the investor would probably go to Switzerland instead. Yeah, and I think if you change this culture, you probably attract a lot more business and you have a completely different outlook from councils to make them growth friendly, which I think apparently they are not. Yeah, I mean, the, I'm pretty reluctant to to think that particularly, I mean, like in, in commerce, cultures change and they're actually really hard to get across the sector. I think you're on stronger ground in getting the incentives uh Right. That's my point. But the culture only changes because flow, the incentives are it's there. It flows down, yeah. Okay. So once you have the incentive there, you will actually turn planners into growth promoters. I've seen this. I've talked to planners and councillors in, say, Switzerland and in Germany, where they have very strong incentives. And these planners have gone to the same kind of planning schools and planning departments and universities. So they hear the same kind of theory that all planners hear. And yet, when you put them into an environment where they are rewarded for success, for creating mm -hmm. growth, employment, jobs, housing, they behave differently. I remember one interview I had with a planner in a German city, a large city, and he told me um, on the record that he saw his job as part of the budget department of a city. He said, my job is to make the council grow because I'm responsible for the revenue generation as a planner. Mm. Imagine a New Zealand planner saying something like that, responsibility for growth and revenue generation. I think they would never in their dreams see their role as that. So I think inject the incentives and you change a different, change the culture, you create a different culture, actually. Yeah, and the... the... <laughs> 
And the the other thing that we would probably take issue is is that the scope of local government. I mean, the initiative have previously published the report saying that it should be responsible more. I think we'd be more comfortable with that once you've covered the governance issues. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the democratic account, so accountability. The other, but the thing is, as long as it's not, we just don't see more duplication. When you look in the area, one obvious area where there is duplication, it's just terrible. And this is around tourism promotion, tourism and economic totally promotion. Agree. If totally we were agree. to, for example, involve councils, dare I say it, in education, um, every 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 parent's probably just um, throwing something at their at their radio. They're listening to this on um, the idea of Auckland Council running a school, but uh, it would be actually to get central government out and to provide that competition and advantages that you quite rightly that localism provides. Um, but again, it's a, it's a it's a chicken and egg thing. I mean, Australia shows it can be done. Um, I mean, John Howard got his GST system in by throwing huge dollops of money. Uh, at uh, at the state governments, and this is sort of a, a little bit equivalent to that. One of the things that's really interesting with the Three Waters um, reforms is the way the government's basically hang, you know, um, wants to take it over. Um, knows that, um, with the exception of water care, that there is actually huge problems around the governance of our um, water infrastructure around the country. The um, it puts us in a terrible position because. Um, I, we worry that actually what we're going to end up with is even worse because it's going, it, it's it's taking away the democracy totally, and that it's not even going to be through central government. It's going to be some weird hybrid um, co-governance model um, where you've got lots of um, cross subsidies between areas that you don't that aren't necessarily transparent. Um, so it, it it's it's it, it maybe it's a case of the better the devil you know than than you don't, and maybe that's why we feel pretty conservative and take a pretty conservative approach to local government well, that's matters. A good point. That's a good point. I think it just uh, is a good idea to keep in mind that the counterfactual to decentralisation is not a perfectly functioning central government system. I think central government has enough problems of its own. It is not. The most efficient uh, tier of government many times, and uh, it does a lot of uh, questionable things as well. Mm. So I think um, the idea that if we only if you give it to local government, things are necessarily going to deteriorate, doesn't quite stack up because there is a lot of waste and a lot of bad practice at central government level as well. Let's circle back round because um, I, I I wanted to say at the beginning of this conversation, but um, but didn't have a chance that there's been two real highlights from my perspective of the New Zealand Initiative's work over the years. The first is convincing uh, the then opposition spokesperson for housing and urban development, um, um, Phil Twyford, Twyford um, to yes. that, that the big issue is land supply and, um, uh, and successfully arguing, um, or in fact it was a manifesto promise for Labor to get rid of that, um, metropolitan urban boundary in Auckland, which artificially increases land supply um, up here. And now you've got this with the National Party, which reading through the documents for a opposition party less than a year into an opposition term, it's pretty good in terms of the detailed um, thinking of the policy. Clearly some work has gone in behind it. I don't know how much um, uh, the initiative were involved, but certainly... Uh, it obviously links back to some of the research work you did back for policy exchange in Britain. Um, in fact, it was called the housing bonus, wasn't it? Or 
it, uh, we proposed a social cost tariff, but um, it had the same logic, of course. We also influenced um, the British government under David Cameron. They were a little bit cautious. They didn't go quite as far as we had uh, proposed, but um, no, we had an influence back then on David Cameron and um, George Osborne and Michael Gove when he was briefly Housing Shadow Secretary. And um, there are speeches, actually, when, from our time in London, when I first started talking about the speeches delivered by David Cameron, where he actually pointed out Switzerland as his role model based on one of the reports I had written back then. So it is always exciting for think tanks to see some of your ideas become mainstream. Mm-hmm. I remember reading an editorial in The Economist of all magazines uh, a few years ago where they made the case that local government is weak, it is not incentivized enough, um, and if you want to fix the housing market, that's the way to do it. And I thought, well... I could have written that, and perhaps I kind of did indirectly, because before we started this incentives quest at Policy Exchange in 2005, nobody talked about it. Everybody said, oh, just release a bit more land for development Mm -hmm. and uh, streamline the town and country planning act in Britain, the the equivalent of our IMA, and everything would be fine. And I always said, well, look, um, Germany, Switzerland, they have building laws and planning rules. Um, They're not too dissimilar in that respect. The one thing that actually makes them stand out is having proper incentives. So I've always argued the case for incentives. I argued it in Britain with some success. I've argued it in Australia with absolutely no success because um, this is a complete minefield. I only had three and a half years and I probably would have needed three and a half decades in Australia. But in New Zealand, after nine years, uh, we've had success with Phil Twyford, where he agrees actually um, it is to buy. He then, of course, um, got a bit distracted. With I think you might have picked the wrong pony was, there, Oliver. Yeah, that was something he inherited, I believe, from Ed King, and uh, he didn't get that from us. Uh, but um, on the planning simplification, the incentive, uh, uh, the increase of supply, um, Phil Twyford, I think, probably took a lot of our ideas, and uh, we were quite pleased with that. And now to see National actually jump on our idea of incentivization, it's hugely satisfying, of mm. course, for thinking to see these ideas become mainstream. Because I remember when I arrived in New Zealand, almost to the day nine years ago, and I started talking about incentives, people thought I was from Mars. Well, turned out I was only from Germany. Well, that's what we do, what we do. And um, I think it's a, it's a huge testament to uh, your organisation and the work, um, uh, the, the, work, the work you do. I still have one goal, of course, to achieve in New Zealand before I eventually retire, and uh, that is to convince the taxpayers' union that incentives are quite cheap. <laughs> well, that might be. A I think once once I have done that, I'll probably resign. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, okay. Um, that, okay. Might be a good, that might be a good. So we're not, not we haven't quite had a meeting of the minds there. I don't, I don't yeah. I think we're against. I don't, yeah, yeah, okay. Then well, it's not what we're, want, what we're fighting. If but you want me to retire, then you know what you have to do. I'm just, I'm very reluctant. The incentives, a whole lot of new abilities to tax would provide um, local government. Oh. But the um, writing a check from, from the beehive to councils to build houses. I think reasonable minds can disagree. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, John. Cheers, Oliver. And I'm sure we'll discuss it again. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Take it. Bye-bye.